our kids this morning to Kids Church. And as they are being dismissed, I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. You know, originally, there was no 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it was just Samuel. And when I was preaching through the book of 1 Samuel earlier this year, I got to the end, and it was just so so anticlimactic. We just we just ended, and 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 Israel Israel you know gets defeated by the Philistines, and and there was just such a such a sense of incompletion. And so I said, we've we, we've got to finish the book of Samuel, and so we're going to walk through uh, the book of Second Samuel. The good news is. The good news is it only took us a year to go through 1 Samuel, so we ought to be able to make it through 2 Samuel pretty quickly, uh, as opposed to the three-plus years it took us to go through the book of Matthew. So we are going to jump right into 2 Samuel now. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now it came about that after the death of Saul... When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, From where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. He said, The people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, He said, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him, He said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Goboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and said, Here I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered to him, and I said, I am Amalekite. And he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for my agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm And I have brought them here to my Lord. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. For the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it? that you were not afraid to stretch out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed. David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Let's pray. Guys, we read this passage. Lord, may we be struck with grief over the sin of Israel, of our own sin. Lord, may we see the grief of David and the people of Israel. 
And may we be able to identify with them. Lord, may we see your providence and your provision for salvation. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I pray that as you leave today, that you will see God's purpose in grief. That you will see how God works through grief, whether it is the grief that we experience here on this earth, whether it, whether it is a, a spiritual grief, whether it is a physical grief. But we will understand that, 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 there is, that there is purpose, that there is good that comes from grief. The scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 5, it said, Blessed are you who mourn and grieve. And so there is a goodness, there is an intrinsic value to grief. The David, the psalmist, he said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. It was good for me that I experienced this, these difficulties that I may learn your statutes. And so we understand that God has a purpose. And so today, we are going to look at what is good grief. Is there such a thing as good grief? Now, I want to point out to you the setting because I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Samuel. We, we, we took about a four-week break and we walked through uh, the, these, uh, a series of faith. But today I want to remember where we were when we ended the book of 1 Samuel. When we ended the book of 1 Samuel, there were two things that were happening simultaneously, and I don't want us to miss this. David was battling the Amalekites. David had had taken, remember, David comes back to his home in Ziklag, and he finds his home burned and destroyed and looted and plundered. And so so he, he, he gathers up his men, and they trek off to avenge uh, the destruction of their home. And while they're on their way, they run into, uh, they run into a prisoner of war that has been discarded, and he tells them where the Amalekites are camped, and David walks in, and he pursues the Amalekites, and he destroys and completely annihilates the people of the Amalekites, fulfilling the promise that Saul should have done, fulfilling the commandment that Saul should have done earlier in the book of, uh, 1 Samuel. And so all of that is taking place simultaneously while Saul is battling the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And so we have these two contrasting battles that are going on simultaneously. You have David experiencing victory, experiencing uh, God's blessings and God's favor as he defeats the Amalekites. And you have Saul experiencing the judgment of God and the justice of God as he and his army falls at, the, uh, at Mount Gilboa at the hands of the Philistines. And so I want us to see this contrast. You have David, the man after God's own heart, God's, God's anointed king, God's covenant king, whom God is, is, has said, you will be my king, and upon you I will build my throne, and through you I will save my people Israel. And then you have Saul, who God has removed the anointing from, and God has pronounced judgment on, and Saul is falling at the hands of the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. This is going on simultaneously. And so you have you have the people in, in David's camp who are, who are joyous and they are experiencing victory and they get home and they get word that Israel has suffered defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Now, I want to point out to you the overall theme of the book of 2 Samuel. It's going to be easy for us to say, well, the book of Samuel is about David. And it is but it's not. If you remember the book of 1 Samuel, the major character in the first section of the book of 1 Samuel was Samuel. 
And then there was a huge section there in the middle where David was, was an afterthought, and it was all about Saul. And then the latter part of 1 Samuel, it, it was David was the primary character. Well, we, as we get into the book of 2 Samuel, we're going to see the first part of 2 Samuel, that David is the primary character. But then we're going to be introduced to Solomon. We're going to be introduced to the descendants of David. And I want us to avoid the temptation to say that the book of Samuel, especially 2 Samuel, is about David. Because it's not. Samuel is about a covenant God who makes a covenant promise to a covenant king through whom he will preserve his covenant people. I'll say that again. That was a lot of covenants. Samuel, the book of Samuel, is about a covenant God. God who has established a covenant with his people. And he makes this covenant promise to a covenant king, David, and his descendants, through whom, through that covenant king, he will preserve his covenant people. So the book of Samuel is less about Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon, and it is more about the God who keeps his covenant promises. And so, as we look at this text, I want us to understand the setting that's going on, I want us to understand what is happening, that there is this simultaneous battle that is taking place. David comes back from victory. Saul has experienced defeat. And it all comes to a head right here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you look at the text in verse 1, it says that, that after David returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David returned and he remained there two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day that a man came out of the camp of Saul And he comes with his clothes torn and with dust on his forehead. And he says, I, he throws himself on the ground and he says, I got bad news for you, David. Now, if any of us remember the story at the end of 1 Samuel, there ought to be some conflict there, right? If we remember the story of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, the scripture tells us that Saul took his own life, right? Everybody shake their head like this. At the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, the scripture tells us that Saul takes his own life. We get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we see that this Amalekite comes in and he says, Saul didn't take his own life, he asked me to do it for him. And so there ought to be a conflict there, right? Now, if we are posed with the option to believe the narrator of scripture, or to believe some Amalekite, some uncircumcised, some, uh, some pagan, whom should we believe? The narrator of Scripture. And so I believe, as well as do many scholars, that this Amalekite shows up and he simply lies. Now, it's a good thing that, that we never lie, right? It's interesting, why, why would this Amalekite come and bring this false news to David? He shows up and he's got what? He's got the crown, he's got the bracelet, and he throws himself at the feet of the man who is going to be the king of Israel. Why do you think he would, he would pose this, this false testimony? Why would he fabricate this lie? Because he's got something to gain, right? He stands to be 
Thank you so much for, for, for sparing our king the shame of, a, of, of being captured by the Philistines. Thank you so much for sparing our king from this and, 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 and from this, this horrible shame. Thank you so much for bringing his crown and his bracelet. I am going to bestow upon you riches and power and glory. That's what he's expecting. But it's interesting. David is no fool. I believe that God gave me children. I've told this before. God gave me children to present to you sermon illustrations, but I think even more than that, God gives us children to reveal reveal our own character to us. As I watch my kids grow up, the thing that scares me the most is when they act like me. (laughs) When I see their mom in them, I know there's hope. When I see myself in them, I am beside myself thinking, oh, these poor children. My little girl is probably the most like me in her personality. She is is compassionate and caring and deceitful and a liar. And, and, And I got permission from her to tell this story. So I, I know my wife's already thinking, he's already, she's already thinking, they're going to be so mad at you whenever they find out you've told this story. But I got permission from her to tell this story. Anna was about seven or eight years old. And she had been told, we, we, we have very, very clear rules that, you know, you can't wear makeup until you're old enough. I, I think she started wearing makeup a little bit this year in middle school. Uh, and mom sat with her and showed her, okay, this is how you put on makeup. The key to wearing makeup is to not look like you're wearing makeup. And so, you know, there was, there was this, this, this whole education process that goes on. Well, whenever you're seven, you want to look like, you want to look like a movie star. And so, so she was told that she can't wear makeup. Well, she comes out of the bathroom and she's got, she looks like Tammy Faye. And she's got, she's got <laughs> lipstick, and she's got eyeshadow, and she's got blush, and she's got makeup all over the place. And, and, and it's funny because all of the, all of the old people understand, all the young people, who, who's, who's Tammy Faye? <laughs> so my daughter comes out, and immediately we say, did you get in mommy's makeup? And what's her response? No. We can see it, literally, we can see it all over her face. We can see the lipstick, we can see the lip gloss, we can see the shadow, we can see the the eyeshadow, we can see the blush. Did you get mommy's makeup? No. Well, we ask her again. Anna, were you playing in mommy's makeup? No, man. And she she is sticking to her guns. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, that is me all over again. She's caught. She is, she is red-handed. She is, the, 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 the gun is smoking in her hands, and she still will not admit she's done wrong. And I see myself, and I am immediately convicted. The false account of the Amalekite, he thought that he could get one over on David. 
David also knew that there's no way that King Saul would be standing there without an armor bearer, without a conglomerate of his own people surrounding him. And had Saul gotten in the situation where he needed someone to take his life, he would not have chosen an Amalekite to take his life. He would have chosen one of his own men to take his life. David knew that this Amalekite was lying. You know, it's interesting, we are just like the Amalekite. We think that we can fool God. We lie to ourselves, and we think that God will buy into the same lies that we tell ourselves. Lies are almost always self-serving. When my wife puts on a dress and looks at me and says, do I, do I look fat in this? When I lie, it's not to spare her feelings. It's to protect my own hide. <laughs> Lies are almost always self-serving. We lie so that we won't get in trouble. We lie so that, so that we can look better. We lie so that we can benefit some way, shape, or form. And as the Amalekite shows up, he, he, he plays it up to a T. He tears his robe. He puts dirt on his head. He throws himself at the mercy of David and said, I have, I, I, I just happened upon King Saul as he was mortally wounded. And as he was mortally wounded, I asked, I said, Lord, what, what would you have me to do? And he said, would you please spare me the shame of falling at the hand of the Philistines? And so I did what only any good servant would do, and I took his life, and now I have brought his crown and his bracelet back to you in hoping that, that, that I would preserve the homage of King Saul. And David said, that's baloney. That's hogwash. It's interesting the Samalekite had lied to himself. He had lied to David. Unaware that the truth will find you out. We read in Numbers, it says, Be sure your sin will find you out. In the book of Psalm 51, David writes this, After his own lie has found him out. David had lied about his relationship with Bathsheba, he had brought David, sorry, brought Bathsheba's wife home to cover up his immorality. And then whenever he was unwilling to, to lay with his wife, whenever he was unwilling to leave his duty as, the, uh, uh, as a warrior, then David had him sent to the front lines and murdered. And after he, David, was confronted with his own lie, David writes this, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Psalm 90, verse 8. We read that David writes, You have placed iniquity before you, and our secret sins is in the light of your presence. Do you realize that the eyes of the Lord are moving to and fro? That there is nothing that we can do that is outside of His knowledge? That God is omniscient, that God knows all. That there is nothing, that there is no sin, there is no, uh, no 
wickedness. There is no iniquity that is secret. There's nothing that is hidden from God. We can lie to ourselves all day long. We can lie to our spouses. We can lie to our church. We can lie to our parents. We can lie to everyone around us, but we cannot hide the truth from God because God knows all and God, God is omniscient. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, he said, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. And there's nothing that is hidden that will not be known. Look at verse 3. He says, accordingly, whatever you've said in the darkness, it will be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in the innermost rooms will be proclaimed among the housetops. It's interesting, sin has its power in darkness. Sin has its power whenever it is hidden. Whenever we think that, we have, that we've gotten away with something, that's whenever sin is at its most powerful. But whenever it's revealed, whenever it's confessed, whenever it is laid before light, the grace of God and the love of God and the compassion of God exposes sin for what it is and the, and the sufficiency of the cross destroys the power of sin. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said this. He said, and this is the judgment that the light comes into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes into the light that his deeds may be manifested having been wrought in God. The sin, sin has its power and has its 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 fulfillment and its its glory in darkness. But when it's even sin, when it is brought into the light, loses its power. Whenever Anna came out of that room with makeup all over her face, we knew she had makeup on. Were we going to beat her? No. It's going to be a teaching moment. We're going to wash her face. We're going to tell her we love her. We were going to explain to her, but she feared. She said, if they find out that I have done what is wrong, then then what's going to happen to me? And that's why we lie. What if? What's going to happen to me? If I tell the truth, my plans, my my scheme will not come to pass. Second Samuel, the Amalekite lied, thinking that he could obtain for himself power, prestige, influence, money. The end of a lie is always death. The end of sin, the culmination, the fruit of sin is always death. Destruction. Sin has its power in darkness. When the lie is revealed, we see the judgment of God executed. I want to point out to you David's response. 
Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's look at verse 11 and 12. David knows this man's lied, but he also knows that Saul is dead. Man's got, the Amalekite brings, for, brings to David the crown of Saul and the bracelet of Saul. He talks about the spear that Saul was holding. So he knows that this man has indeed brought him accurate information that Saul is dead. While he lied about how Saul died, he brought him accurate information that Saul is dead. Now who was Saul to David? Saul was the man who tried to kill David time and time and time again. So on one hand, David would one would think that David would say, at least Saul is dead. At least I can go back to Israel and not have to worry about my head. At least I can go back to Israel and not be a, ha- a hunted man anymore. At least I can go back to Israel and assume the role that God has placed upon me. At least I can assume the, uh, the, the, the throne that God has laid at my that's not how David responds. Look at chapter 12, uh, chapter, uh, verse 11 and 12. David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David understood that Saul was not his enemy. David understood that the Philistines were not his enemy. That the Amalekites were not his enemy. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, the principalities of darkness, against this spiritual realm. John chapter 10, 10 Jesus says, for the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. David understood that while Saul was crazy, and while he was was afflicted with with, with mental disabilities and mental disorders, and while he was 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 seeking to kill me to preserve his own throne, and while, while there were false a plenty in Saul that Saul was not the enemy. And that David understood that as Israel loses their king, and Israel loses Jonathan, and Israel loses this royal family, that it was indeed a grievous time. That it was a time of mourning. David's response was that sin had ultimately called Saul. That sin had had culminated in the life of Saul, and the ultimate culmination of that was death. That that sin carries with it a consequence, and that, that, that sin destroys completely and completely destroys. And David saw the manifestation of sin in the life of Saul, and in the life of the, the, the king of Israel, and it grieved him. I believe it grieved him more, I believe it grieved him more simply that, not simply that Saul had died, but that, that Saul had come that sin had come full circle and had completely destroyed and destroyed completely. And David saw 
the culmination, he saw the full consequence of sin. David was a man who was acquainted with, with, with the spiritual realm. David was a man, a deeply emotional man. We get this in the, in, in the books of Psalm as David writes poetry and he writes these psalms and as he writes about his lamentations and as he writes and, and we'll see in the book of 2 Samuel, the next chapters, uh, uh, the end of chapter 1, verses 17 through 27, David puts those lamentations into word. He puts his grief into words because he is deeply grieved over the consequences of sin. And as he is grieved over the consequences with sin, he calls his people, he calls his soldiers to grieve and mourn with him. Saying it's not about Saul's death, it is about the consequences of sin. And so this is a question that I have to us, church. As we all identify with Anna, and whenever we're caught, we lie to preserve ourselves for our own self-interest. And whenever we, our lie is revealed and whenever our, our sin is revealed, are we grieved? Do we grieve with David when the Holy Spirit pulls back the shades of the light of God's glory and it shines into our life? David, I'm sorry, uh, Paul makes a statement at the end of his life. He makes a statement. He says, he says, Jesus, it's a trustworthy statement that Jesus died for sinners of whom I'm the chiefest. Now, Paul makes this statement at the end of his life and arguably it can be said that at the time Paul makes a statement that he is probably one in the most sanctified, holy position in his life. He is no longer a young man struggling with, with, with ambition, but he is an old man who has learned. He has, he has been in, thrown in prison for his zeal for the gospel. He has planted church after church after church. He's written over half of the New Testament at this point in his life, and he makes a statement, I'm the chiefest of sinners. So how is it that at the end of Paul's life, he can say, I am the chiefest of sinners, and I believe that because when the light of God's glory shines into our life, it reveals every imperfection compared to the light of God's glory. Have you ever dusted a piece of furniture, and you think that it's clean? And then you pull back the shades, and what do you see? You see the dust... That was, init- that was initially hidden. When the sunlight pours in that window, all of a sudden, that which was visible only by the incandescent light is now made visible by the light of the sun. When the light of God's glory shines in our life, it reveals to us sin that we had not yet seen. And when the light of God's glory reveals that sin in our lives, what is our response? If we're honest, most of us are like the Amalekite. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we blame it on someone else. We say, well, at least I'm not as bad as this guy. Or at least I don't look like that guy. Or at least I've got this part of my life in order. 
We're not grieved over our sin. We're not grieved over the sin of the church. The more we are aware of our own sin and the more we are aware of our own depravity, interestingly enough, the more empathetic and gracious we are to others. The more we are aware of how much of a liar we are, the more compassionate we are upon those whom we rub shoulders with. There's a reason why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to His disciples, to those who are on the multitude, on the Sermon on the Mount of Olives, there's a reason Jesus says, Remove the plank from your own eye so that you may see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Why? It's because Jesus understands that the more we are aware of our own depravity, the more empathetic and compassionate we are with others. And so here's the question I want to leave us with. Are we grieved over the lostness of our world? Are we grieved over the sin in our own life? Are we grieved over the state of our brothers and sisters who don't know Christ? Or are we so egocentric, are we so self-centered that the only thing we're concerned about is ourselves? This narrative, the narrative of 2 Samuel, will bring us to the fulfillment of of God's ultimate salvation from our sin. David was grieved over Saul's sin. He was grieved over the sin of Israel. He was grieved over his own sin. The ultimate solution to that sin will be found in the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the person of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 9, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming down the hill and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no solution to sin in and of ourselves. We are all liars. We are all thieves. We are all adulterers, murderers, Utterly and completely depraved. And when we become aware of our depravity, not only are we more empathetic to others, we are infinitely more grateful to the cross, which paid the penalty for my sin and made me right in the sight of God. This morning, Are you grieved over your sin? That's a good grief. Are you grieved over the consequences of your sin? May it draw you to the bleeding side of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You that in Your great grace You've taken care of the consequences of our sin in the person of Jesus. God, I thank You that You do not deal with me according to the 
according to my transgressions, Lord, but you deal with me according to the greatness of your compassion. And as far as the east is from the west, you've cast my sin aside. Lord, I thank you that Jesus bore the consequences of my sin that I may enjoy the fruit of eternal life. Maybe this morning God is speaking to your heart and He's calling you to be grieved for your own sin. Maybe this morning God is calling you to grieve and mourn over the sin and the lostness of your co-workers and your friends and your family. And He's called you not only to grieve over it, but to do something about it. Won't you start by praying for them? Praying for an opportunity to share with them the solution to sin, the solution of Jesus. God, as we walk through the book of 1 Samuel, may you continue to reveal to us your covenant. God, as you reveal your heart to through your word, may you draw your church to your side. Lord, may we be a church that is compassionate and gracious. May we be a church is indeed a hospital for sinners. God, may you speak to our hearts during this time of invitation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.